0: set Europe ablaze. Those were the instructions of Prime Minister Winston Churchill when in June 1940, Hitler stomped across Europe. With the beaten back British forces unable to mount any kind of assault on Europe for the foreseeable future, the newly formed Special Operations Executive, or SOE, would instead work alongside a local resistance groups in occupied lands gathering intelligence on the enemy, coordinating operations between resistance cells, sabotaging German equipment, and conducting assassinations. It was a dirty but necessary kind of warfare. SOE agents could expect merciless treatment if captured, and thus the psychological strain of being constantly on their guard meant that only the strongest and toughest of people would do. Because they needed the very best of the best, the SOE didn't have room to discriminate based on gender. What mattered most was that any prospective agent was intelligent, resourceful, tenacious, courageous, and above all, dedicated to eradicating Nazism. In today's episode, we are going to look at three of the incredible women who served with the SOE, working to, as Churchill instructed, set, Europe ablaze. Welcome to Wars of the Worlds. Vera Atkins could stake a claim to being Britain's top female spymaster of World War II. Born in Bucharest, Romania on June 16th of 1908 as Vera Rosenberg, she was the daughter of a German Jew and his English wife. After her father passed away in 1932, she went on to study modern languages in Paris before she and her mother permanently moved to Britain as the situation in Europe began deteriorating. And before the war even broke out, she was being conscripted as a spy. Canadian spymaster, William Stevenson, who was working with Winston Churchill, who was not yet the prime minister of England, identified Vera as someone who they could use on missions in Europe to gather intelligence on Germany. Now using the more Anglican name of Vera Atkins and posing as an ordinary civilian, she was part of a British operation sent to Poland to meet with codebreakers, who claimed to have constructed a replica of the German Enigma machine, which could then be examined and used to break the vital German codes. Travelling by air via Greece, not to unduly alert any German agents who may have been onto them, Atkins' party landed in Poland a mere six days before. Hitler's armies charged across the border on September 1st of 1939, beginning World War II. Once German forces began their invasion and Britain and France declared war in response, Vera helped evacuate the codebreakers to her former homeland of Romania, which at that time was a neutral country in the fighting. After being interned for a short while, they were allowed to continue onwards back to France and then Britain with their vital piece of equipment. After returning to Britain, Atkins was soon back in Europe, although undertaking an unsanctioned operation of her own. She took with her a large sum of money, which she hoped to use to bribe a German official to give her the necessary documentation for her cousin to cross German-occupied Europe and meet her in Britain. But upon entering the Netherlands, the Germans invaded the neutral country and her plan was foiled. She was forced to go on the run and was eventually smuggled back to Britain thanks to help from the Belgian resistance in late 1940. In February, 1941, she joined the ranks of the SOE and was assigned as an assistant to Major Maurice Bugmaster, who led F-Section, whose job concerned special operations in France. F-Section's team was only eight strong, but would ultimately be responsible for some 470 agents working in the field against the Germans. Compared to other military establishments, the hierarchy of F-Section was more relaxed, allowing everyone to have their say in operations, and Atkins quickly established herself as one of the most prominent members, with some even going as far to say that while Bookmaster was in command, she was nonetheless the brains of the outfit. Atkins was significantly involved in the recruitment process for new agents, often interviewing and vetting them personally, she would then customize a training regime for them, as well as plan as much of their operation in France herself. As a result of this, she was often heavily invested in the successful and above all safe conclusion of their missions. As she explained in one interview after the war, quote, "'The burden of stress was probably on the person "'who was seeing them off, the realization "'that they were going out on a very dangerous mission.'" And this was probably the last glimpse they would have of the lovely countryside through which you were traveling with them while you remained quite safely at the end. There was a considerable strain on one at this time. I think it must have been extraordinarily tough. I was extremely exhausted by it. She also proved extremely useful in deciphering German codes and making sense of garbled transmissions intercepted by British intelligence. Upon the conclusion of the war, she assisted in the investigations of German war crimes, interviewing people who had conducted some of the most heinous crimes in history. Hugo Bleicher, an Abwehr officer who had ruthlessly clamped down on all resistance to German occupation, judged her interrogation to be the most skillful to which he had been subjected by his Dutch, French, and British captors. Perhaps her most disturbing interrogation took place in March of 1946, where she found herself sat across the table with Rudolf Hess, the German commander of Auschwitz. During the interrogation, she asked whether it was true that he had caused the deaths of one and a half million Jews, a figure that he dismissed nonchalantly before adding matter-of-factly that the true number was 2,345,000. Having been so invested in the agents she dispatched into occupied Europe, she never gave up on trying to discover the fate of those who never returned. There were 118 in total, and she frequently interrogated German guards at POW and concentration camps. And in the end, there was only one instance in which she was unable to trace a missing agent. The agent in question had been sent to Marseille with 3 million francs, and many have speculated that he was unable to resist the temptation of betting this sum at Monte Carlo. He may then have committed suicide after losing it all, or alternatively, he may have won and created a new persona where he lived out the rest of his days a very wealthy man, but a traitor to the cause of freedom. Settling in the English County of Sussex, Vera Atkins passed away shortly after her 92nd birthday on June 24, 2000. It was only after her biographer interviewed some of those at her funeral that the unsanctioned mission to help her cousin escape Romania was uncovered, which means like all great spies, she took at least one secret with her to the grave. Born in Warsaw, Poland on May 1st, 1908, Christina Skarbek grew up in a well-connected Polish family linked to the aristocracy within several countries on her father's side and a wealthy Jewish family on her mother's. Growing into an attractive young woman, she enjoyed various sports and activities such as horse riding and skiing. And with her good looks, she even became a runner-up in the 1930 Miss World competition. However, on a personal level, it seemed happiness was just out of grasp. A brief marriage ended when both parties realized it was a mistake and with the stain of being a divorcee on her character, she struggled to find other suitors willing to commit to her. Then one day while skiing the slopes of Zakopane, she lost control and were it not for the intervention of another skier nearby, she could have suffered untold injuries. In that moment, she couldn't have known that she had just met her future husband. Jersey Gesicki was very similar to Christina in many ways, both being headstrong and determined individuals. And when they married on November 2nd, 1938, the two of them looked set for success with Gaziki accepting a diplomatic posting to Ethiopia, allowing the two of them to experience Africa, something they had both very much dreamed of doing. Then less than a year later, their homeland was invaded by Hitler and with no Polish government, Gizicki's posting was voided. The couple decided to sail for England, by which time Christina had decided that she wanted to play an active role in combating the enemy that had overrun her country. British authorities initially rejected her request to join the British intelligence services, but she persisted and with the help of an acquaintance of hers, a journalist by the name of Frederick Voigt she was finally accepted by the Special Intelligence Service, or SIS. Documents concerning her at the time described her as a flaming Polish patriot, expert skier, and great adventuress, as well as absolutely fearless. Being sent to Hungary, which was yet to enter the war, and posing as a British journalist named Christine Granville, she helped establish a network of couriers in and across Poland, to allow British intelligence to communicate and supply its agents within the occupied land. During one of her early trips into Poland, she made contact with her mother and pleaded with her to follow her to Hungary, but she refused and was later arrested and killed by the Nazis for her Jewish heritage. In January, 1941, it looked as though her luck had run out when she was arrested by Hungarian police and then handed over to the German Gestapo. During her incarceration, she bit her tongue until it bled and feigned symptoms of tuberculosis, something she was familiar with having seen her father die from the illness. This ruse worked with even a German doctor diagnosing her as such, and this, coupled with her unwillingness to break under questioning, convinced the Germans that she was merely a journalist, and she was released. But sensing that she was being followed, she and another agent decided to leave Hungary and head for Yugoslavia, aided by British ambassador, Owen O'Malley. Taking with them two rolls of microfilm handed to them by the Polish resistance, the two of them drove the ambassador's car over the border and into Yugoslavia, where they met up with a Royal Auxiliary Air Force intelligence officer named Aidan Crawley. After handing the microfilm to him, the two of them continued driving through Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, and eventually into Turkey where her husband met up with them. It was a rather uncomfortable meeting as Gazicki began to suspect that her relationship with her fellow agent Andrei Kowarski, had become more than just comrades in arms. There were further troubles for her and Kowarski when they resumed their travels and headed to Cairo in Egypt, then part of the British Empire. It seemed that their otherwise laudable car journey across pro-German lands had in fact cast suspicion on them from their British superiors, who began to suspect that they could be double agents. In June of 1941, they were dismissed from frontline duties and forced to live on a meager wage, at which point Christina decided it was time to level with her husband and admit that she and Kowalski were now lovers. She and her husband would later formally divorce after the war. During this period, the war entered a new phase with the German invasion of the Soviet Union, the microfilm she had helped deliver from the Polish resistance showed the buildup to this event and was viewed by Winston Churchill personally. Over the following years, she was gradually worked back into British intelligence and recruited by the SOE. A plan was put in place for her to be parachuted into Hungary and resume her work with the Polish resistance. However, this was curtailed by the Polish government in exile who were still suspicious of her despite British authorities deciding she could be trusted. Therefore, the SOE put her to work on aiding the French resistance following D-Day. Parachuting into German-held territory, she worked as a courier for British and French resistance fighters, as well as gathering information on German positions and committing acts of sabotage and assassination. Probably her most celebrated action surrounds the release of an SOE agent and French officer, on August 13th of 1944. She attempted to rally French resistance fighters to help her storm the prison where the two were being held. And when this failed, she instead came up with a cunning plan. She made contact with the Gestapo officer in charge of their incarceration and broke her cover, informing him that she was a British agent and furthermore was a niece of British General Bernard Montgomery. With allied troops less than 40 miles away, She informed the Gestapo officer that if he released them without harm, she would do everything she could to protect him from the retribution of the French locals who he had been terrorizing under the occupation. However, if he refused, she warned him she could do nothing to protect him. The Gestapo officer agreed and released them safely. By the end of 1944, France was now largely back under the rule of its people and SOE operations soon ceased. Christina and Kowerski were due to be sent back to Poland, but again, the plan was dropped after other agents were captured by the Soviet army marching across Eastern Europe. Her time as a secret agent was over, but sadly, the hero's post-war life was marred by hardship. Her relationship with Kowarski fizzled out and she attempted to join an old British flame in Kenya, but found she couldn't get a work permit there. Bouncing from job to job, she eventually found employment as a steward on an ocean liner where she was expected to wear her many medals that had been bestowed upon her with her uniform. This made her a firm favorite amongst rich paying guests, much to the irritation of the other stewards who didn't have nearly as many awards to their service. Feeling isolated from her shipmates, she found comfort with a man named Dennis Muldowney, but eventually this comfort turned to caution as she found him possessive and intimidating. While on a stopover in London on June 15th, 1952, Muldowney flew into a rage with her and stabbed her to death in a room at the Shelbourne Hotel in Earls Court after she refused his advances. Muldowney pled guilty to murder and was hanged three months later. Christina Scarbeck, who had been living under her British name, Christine Granville since the war, was just 37 years old when she died. On New Year's Day, 1914, Noor Inayat Khan was born to an Indian father and American mother in Moscow. Her father made a living in the Russian city as a musician and a teacher of Sufism, a form of Islamic mysticism which attracted many wealthy middle-class families in Russia at the time. His historical roots only made him more enticing to them for he was a descendant of Tipu Sultan, who was killed when he and his people resisted the advances of British colonialism. In their own culture, this made Noor Inayat Khan a princess despite not retaining their ancestral lands. As Russia fell into political turmoil during the First World War, Her father moved the family to England before eventually moving again to France, settling down in Paris, where she undertook much of her education before finding work writing children's stories. Her career was cut short, however, as the storm clouds of war once again plunged Europe into darkness. And with France on the verge of falling, she escaped to Britain. Deciding she wished to fight against the Nazis, Khan enlisted in the British Women's Auxiliary Air Force on November 19, 1940. But unsatisfied with the more mundane duties the WAAF were employed in, within one year, she applied for a role in the intelligence services. Her application was accepted. She began her training at Compton Bassett in Wiltshire as a wireless operator, becoming the first member of the WAAF to receive such advanced training. Given her intimate knowledge of France, and in particular, the occupied capital city of Paris, and coupled with this new training, she was eventually recruited by the SOE in November 1942. However, the covert organization was a little hesitant to use her in the field, given her heritage, and with the racial intolerance of even many ordinary German soldiers in France, it was feared she would attract too much attention. Eventually, such doubts were put aside since she would spend much of her time hidden away with the French resistance. Over the coming months, she received extensive training in covert and paramilitary warfare techniques at various locations across Great Britain in an effort to give her the best possible preparation for the challenges that lay ahead. Then on the night of June 16, 1943, she boarded an RAF aircraft and was flown across the English Channel into German occupied France, having been given the code name Madeleine. She was instructed to head into Paris and make contact with an agent code named Cinema or Phono, real name Henry Gary, of the Prosper Resistance Network. She would then serve as his wireless operator, allowing them to keep in contact with exiled French commanders in Britain and coordinate operations between Allied forces and fellow resistance groups. However, it was almost not to be for her arrival coincided with a Gestapo operation to bring down the group and dozens of arrests were made, although Kahn managed to escape. Having recovered her radio set from the resistance group in Le Mans, she took it back to her Paris safe house. She now being the only transmitting agent left in the city in the third quarter of 1943. Constantly on the move and doing what she could to disguise herself, she was able to evade the Germans for three and a half months while continuing to transmit messages via radio, as well as organizing clandestine flights for agents and supplies in and out of the French countryside using aircraft like the British Lysander. By October of 1943, it was felt that she had done enough and she made preparations for her impending return to Britain. Then on October 14th, acting on details from an informant, she was captured by the Gestapo and taken to their Paris headquarters for questioning but she was not done yet, and incredibly, she escaped their custody not once, but twice. However, given the high security in the area and her lack of support, she was recaptured both times. Realizing they had a particularly tenacious agent on their hands, the Germans decided to send her to Fortsheim prison in Germany, where she was considered highly dangerous and kept chained up in isolation with only short periods of respite between her interrogations. Despite the appalling conditions she was kept in and frequent beatings and torture, she refused to answer any questions. This went on for almost a whole year until in September, 1944, the Germans decided there was no point in keeping her any longer. On September 11, 1944, she and three other captured female agents were transported 250 miles to the Dachau concentration camp, it would be the last journey any of them would ever take. Evidence given by witnesses at the war crime trials and by surviving prisoners of the camp tell of her last night alive being one of unnecessary torture and humiliation. Then finally, in the morning, she along with three other women were each executed, being shot in the back of the head. Her last word uttered before it was her turn is reported to have been liberty. After the war, she was posthumously bestowed with the French Croix de guerre with Gold Star and the British George Cross. In 2012, a statue of her was unveiled in the Gordon Square Garden, one of her favorite places to visit in Britain when she was alive. It stands as a reminder of her sacrifice and to keep the memory of her alive for generations to come.